Please turn to the book of Genesis. I'll be reading chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and the daughters and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And they took as their wives any that they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in them forever. For he is flesh. His days shall be one hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that He had created man on the earth. And it grieved Him to His heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have created them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And Lord, we address You now and ask for Your help and clarity to understand You. Oh, may we see a portion of Your essence and of Your being and of Your attributes clearly today that we may find great joy and comfort in it. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Remember last week we saw through this journey through biblical history, that God in Genesis 3.15 said that He was going to be doing something. Putting enmity between the seed or the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. We saw that what He was doing, there was a line coming from Cain, unregenerate, not born again, darkened, sin is continually fomenting and growing in him and his children and his children's children as opposed to Abel and then his replacement Seth and we see Seth's line are these people who are worshiping God who love God they're calling on the name of God because God caused Seth and his offspring to be born again now we come to chapter 6 and what we see that who knows how long of a time, but over time, the Cainite line started to overwhelm the godly line. When the text says that the sons of God married these gorgeous, sexy women, is what it means. Those sons of God does not refer to angelic, otherly, non-human creatures. It refers to the line of the born-agains, of Seth, the godly line, who is at enmity 
with the Canine line. Many people in church history, and going way back, have understood this strange saying, the sons of God saw the daughters of men to be beautiful, to be angelic type of beings, fallen angels or, or what. And the way they argue is to say, do you see, it says the sons of God, they married the daughters of man. Therefore, man or men here means all humanity. Therefore, those who are the sons of God marrying the daughters of the men in humanity must be some non-human type of being. And many people have held to that. I think on the surface it's bizarre and I do not think it is a necessary interpretation of this text at all. If we're following from 3.15 on, I will put enmity between your seed and her seed. And we see it start to happen with Cain and Abel. And then we see the line of Cain and Abel's replacement, Seth. And they're utterly distinct. One loves God, the other doesn't. And then you come to chapter 6. The original readers of the Hebrew text would have, I think, clearly understood this to mean the Seth line. The sons of God. When we look throughout the rest of Scripture, that term children of God refers to Israel, sons of God. There's, there's no problem with the term referring to human beings who are gods. The only time that sons of God refers to angelic beings is in poetical literature in the Old Testament. Never in historical books like Genesis. Y'all can think of probably one, beginning the book of Job. Only time. I think what's going on here, when you follow the train of thought of Genesis, it clearly refers to the righteous, born-again, godly line of Seth, who slowly started to, hmm, let the attractiveness of non-born-agains, the Canaanite line, persuade their hearts to marry and to do it again and again and again and again. And of course, Jesus made a comment on angels. They don't marry. They're not sexual beings, nor given in marriage. And now, look at verse 3, God's response to this. Chapter 6, verse 3. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in them or with man forever, for he is flesh, and his days shall be 120 years. You get this response of judgment from God. If this were non-human angelic beings, which just out of the context, just comes out of the blue, then why would God come with such harsh words of judgment? If angelic, non-human beings overtook these women and bore some type of other being through these women, why is God so angry at man? It makes sense only if the sons of God refers to man. It refers to the line of Seth. The sinful... See, being born again never means you are sinless. We all know that, I hope, if we're born again. 
but slowly over time in intermarrying the naivete that maybe we can change the pretty Canaanite woman didn't work. And this interpretation makes sense of the flow of the beginning of Genesis. From chapter 3, verse 15, I will put enmity all the way up to Noah. This is what brings coherency. That explains how, what happened then, Joe. Last week we saw this godly line. Okay, okay, we saw the Canaanite serpent satanic line. Now we come to Noah and the whole earth is filled with evil. What happened? That explains it. He says this is how it happened. Over time, they started to intermarry until there was no more Seth line, except for Noah and his family. Then you come to verse 4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old the men of renown. That word Nephilim, its Hebrew root means to fall or to fall upon. Which I think what's going on here, there were Nephilim in those days and before and afterward who fell upon people, who plundered righteous people, innocent peoples, took their stuff, slaughtered them. We started to see this last week in the Canaanite line with Lamech, you heard sevenfold revenge on Cain, seventy-sevenfold on me. This violence is there in the text last week, and now it grows and grows and grows. These Nephilim who fall upon. And I think the text, the way it's structured here, implies that the children born of the sons of God, going into the daughters of the Canaanite line, are becoming like their mother, not their fathers. Like their mother's granddad and not like the grandpa on the other side. To the place, that's where it says, in those days and after this sons of God, Seth line intermarries with the Canaanite line. The Nephilim, the violent, vicious people. So now let me just say what I said by rereading this and paraphrase what I think is going on here. Here's my paraphrase of this text. The Nephilim, that is the violent Canaanite types, were on the earth when the Sethite men began to marry and to mix with the serpent line. And thus, afterward, there were many more of these violent types as a result of their mixed marriages. These offspring were the mighty men of old, violent Canaanites, men of renown. And that helps us understand clearly what comes next. Look at verse 11 to 12. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence, and God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. How? He just told us how it happened. And how? And then God, faithful God, who has promised to put enmity between 
a godly, regenerate line and a Canaanite line steps in in order to preserve that Sethite line through Noah. So read with me verses 5 through 8. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that He had made man on the earth and it grieved Him to His heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. As we have seen, and for following What's going on here in redemptive history? God created man in order to glorify Himself. And now, all mankind, 99.9999% of them, not only sinful, but the manifestation of that sin is just absolute anarchy and violence. And God, who is eternally holy and glorious, can not be indifferent to that. And so, He's going to show His wrath by wiping out the entire human race. Except for one family of the Sethite line. So we're going to come to Noah and the ark next week. And the covenant God makes with him. This morning, just... There's just I want to concentrate on verses 6 and 7, for it is massive, verses 6 and 7. And I want you to think, really cause your mind to think, how shall you understand what is said here? Verses 6 and 7. And the Lord was sorry that He had made man on the earth. And it grieved him to his heart. He said, For I am sorry that I have made them. Here's the question. Can God, who is eternal and infinite, now here's the big word, can God, if He is omniscient, That's that big word for has all knowledge of everything that is past, present, and future. There is nothing in reality that is to come that He does not fully understand before it happens. If that is who this Creator is, here's the question. Is it possible for Him to be sorry for something that he chose to do. The old King James actually translates this word, I'm repentant. I want to turn around from my decision to create humanity. That's what this text is saying to I want you to feel the question. If he is omniscient, which means before he ever created, 
He knew exactly what would transpire in Genesis 6. And if he knew that, is it possible for him that when it happens to feel grieved about it and say, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done it? That's the question. And it's an important question in our day, and it's a more and more important question in our day because there are more and more voices writing books, pastoring churches, who are in evangelicalism, who are answering that question, no. No, they say, if God were omniscient, who, in other words, He knows exactly every choice every human being would ever make, including what's happened in Genesis 6. If God knew that before He created, He could not genuinely say, I'm sorry I have created man. I quote a few of these voices for you. Listen carefully to what they're trying to say. In the Christian church, this is a theologian teaches at Bethel College and Seminary, and he is a pastor of a fairly large church in Minneapolis. Gregory Boyd. In the Christian view, God knows all of reality. Everything there is to know. That's his key phrase. He said, goes on, but to assume that God knows ahead of time how every person is going to freely act assumes that each person's free activity is already there to know, even before he freely does it. But it is not. If we have been given freedom, we create the reality of our decisions by making them. And until we make them, they don't exist. Thus, in my view at least, there simply isn't anything there for God to know. Like Genesis 6 didn't happen. It wasn't there for Him to know in eternity past until we make it there to know. So God cannot foreknow the good and bad decisions of the people He creates until He creates these people and they, in turn, create their decisions. What He has just done there He has totally attacked the historical Christian and larger Western view of the nature of God when it comes to His omniscience. Another voice, Richard Rice says, all that God does not know is the content of future free decisions, and this is because decisions are not there to know until they occur. God does not know what you will choose on the menu when you're at a restaurant this week yet. He may guess pretty good because He is God, but He doesn't know absolutely. 
Because if he knew that absolutely as God, that would mean you could not do anything other than choose that because he would have known that from eternity past what you would do. One more voice. Clark Pinnock, theologian, says, Decisions not yet made do not exist anywhere to be known by God. God can predict a great deal of what we will choose to do, but not all of it, because some of it remains hidden in the mystery of human freedom. So, what these voices are saying is that God simply could not regret or feel sorry for doing something if He knew that when He did it, like creation, it would be something that He ended up regretting. They say He would not have done it. And therefore, God does things, chooses, creates, moves, acts, without knowing many of the future consequences of His action. I turn to a book by Gregory Boyd and see how that substructure of a brand new theology that's going to permeate the pews of evangelicalism more and more and more. It always does. How will you deal with our text here in Genesis chapter 6? Quote, To begin... One aspect of the portrait of God in Scripture that suggests the future is partly open, what that means is, the future is open in that God does not know all the future. Because it doesn't exist. Since you're part of the future as a human being, you make decisions. And you create, therefore, the future then, but He can't know it beforehand. To begin, one aspect of the portrait of God in Scripture that suggests the future is partly open is the fact that God sometimes regrets how things turn out, even prior decisions that He Himself has made. For example, in the light of the depravity that characterized humanity prior to the flood, the Bible says, quote, the Lord was sorry that He made humankind on the earth and it grieved Him to His heart. Genesis 6.6 The genuineness of His regret is evidenced by the fact that the Lord immediately took measures to destroy humanity and start over. Now, if everything about world history were exhaustively settled and known by God as such before He created the world, God would have known with absolute certainty that humans would come to this wicked state at the same time even before He created them. Here He goes on. Here's His rhetorical question. But how then could God authentically regret having made humanity. Doesn't the fact that God regretted the way things turned out to the point of starting over suggest that He was not, or excuse me, it was not a foregone conclusion at the time God created human beings 
that they would fall into this state of wickedness. In other words, here's the question then. Is Greg Boyd right? Is it true that God could not talk like this if He had known what would happen in Genesis 6? In other words, when God created, if He knew exactly what would transpire throughout history, and including Genesis chapter 6, wickedness overtaking the world, is it true that therefore God would never have created? And thus, it's true that God could never have responded genuinely with, I'm sorry that I did this. It grieves me, and I'm going to punish. The reason God could grieve and feel sorry in a sense, repent that He created man, Boyd is saying, is because He did not foresee absolutely what would happen in Genesis chapter 6 and 7. Let me rephrase the question this way. Can God, when He acts, ten billions of acts, let's put the big one here too, I create man, I act Can God, in doing that act, feel grief in one sense that He does it? And joy also in the same act and at the same time. Can God regret the act of creation of man for His glory? In Genesis 6, genuinely, and at the same time, concerning the creation of man, feel great joy from a different viewpoint. That's what they're not seeing and what they're denying. I'm going to argue it's exactly who God is. To start to see this, turn to Acts chapter 2, verse 23. Let's contemplate one simple verse. This Jesus, be with me here, Peter preaching, this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by the hands of sinful, lawless men. Now pay attention. God knew ahead of time that He was sending Jesus to be killed at the hands of sinful men. And yet, the killing of Jesus, I submit, was more evil the killing of the eternal second person of the Trinity being incarnated, the sin done against Him at the hands of men was more evil than all the sin and evil and wickedness in the days of Noah. We should just think about it. Okay, if that be true, could we not assume that God who grieved, it grieved me to the heart. I'm sorry I created them in Genesis 6, before Noah, could we not assume that this same God, in one sense, at the death 
of the eternal begotten one, at the torture of the eternally begotten one in humanity, grieve at that. I say yes. God, in the sin of the Sanhedrin, in the sin of Pilate and Herod, grieved, felt true, genuine hatred and of the sin that was being done to Jesus. Yet, this text in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, explicitly says, God not only knew in His omniscience before creation and before the incarnation exactly what would happen, He planned it. It is these two views and complexity of God that I have experienced in my Christian life in dealing with other Christian people that some can never get past. If I were to this, if I were to say, God purposed sovereignly from eternity past planned the torture of His Son. They seem, some people seem to hear me say this, God sat back while Jesus is being tortured and just laughed because He enjoyed the torture in and of itself. And their ears close off. They just close off. Of course, I put it that way because, no, they don't do that. Well, yes, here's the problem. We do it when we think about this same sovereign God and the pain and the evil done against us by others in our life. They hear you say, God's sovereign. You mean He willed Take my parents away from me when I was a child? I can't love a God like that. You're telling me in that evil of child molestation, God was sovereign? I can't hear it. You're telling me He enjoyed that in and of itself. Or He wouldn't have willed it. No, I'm not saying that. Any more than I'm saying that God enjoyed the torture of His eternal Son. Yet He planned it. God's more complex than we can imagine. God can grieve at the death of Jesus when He views it narrowly as an end in itself. What's happening is sin. And he can see it that way and genuinely say, I hate that. And he can see that same event with a different viewpoint, lens, on how it fits into the canopy of all redemptive history and say, yes, it must be. Because the goal and the end of it all is good. Inglorious.
See, if God in the cross has the capacity to feel grief at the sin of Judas, and He will judge it, it was clear, better you never been born. If He can feel that and plan it, that means this, God has the capacity to genuinely purpose and approve the cross of Christ and at the same time feel genuine grief at the sin that must be to put Jesus to death in the cross. And if that is conceivable when we look at the cross and God's relation to it, is it not just as conceivable when we look at Genesis 6, when God created, and He wanted to do it, and He didn't make a mistake, yet He could say genuinely, when sin engulfed the earth, I am sorry, I have made them. Just hang with me. Just at least try. I know that you might be struggling with it. Grab that as a grid. God might be a little bit more mysterious than I can imagine, a little bit more complex than I think. Grab that as a grid and keep that and be very slow when you read books like this or you read the text. Be very slow on conclusions you draw about God when He says in our text, I repent. I am sorry. I created man. Or, let me give you one other. There's like 15 of these kind of texts in Scripture. One other is in 1 Samuel 15, 11. God chose Saul to be the first king of Israel. And then Saul became evil and more evil and more evil. And God says, I regret that I have made Saul King, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. Why did he regret? Did he regret because he did not know for sure what Saul would do? It's not the conclusion that we should draw from it. Pause. Be slow. Let me throw out two more texts to you. Numbers 23.19 God is not a man that He should lie. Nor is He the Son of man that He should change His mind. Now we should be a little bit more perplexed. Here you said you made Saul king and now you regret it. Well, what do we do with the text that God is not like a human being that He would change His mind? Or at 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 29... And also the glory of Israel, this is God, God will not lie, nor will He have regret. Because He is not a man that He should have regret. That text is in the same context, in the same story, where He said, I regret that I made Saul king. Are we to think that God and the human author of 1 Samuel is confused? Or might we not draw the conclusion 
that God never regrets anything His sovereign will chooses. And in another sense, does regret. Not the same sense. When He looks at Saul and his evil. Or the earth in Noah's day being filled with evil. He can regret in one sense, which in another sense, he cannot ever regret any decision he ever makes. The assertion in these texts that God says, I am not a man that I regret. I think what he's doing is saying, do not ever understand God's capacity for grief and sorrow in your limited, finite, human way. Do never understand God's capacity to regret, meaning this, He did not see that coming, so I regret. I create man. Isn't this great? And Genesis goes on, and we get to Genesis 6, and the sons of God went into the daughters of men, and the Nephilim were on the earth in that day, and the whole earth was corrupt, and God regrets because I didn't see it coming. He says, I'm not a man. I don't regret in that way. God knows fully and completely all future human choices and everything that will transpire throughout eternity future. He has never not known it fully in all of His eternal existence. We should rather say that God's capacity to feel sorry, like our text says, sorry that He created, is God's eternal plan before creation that when He purposes creation and knows in His omniscience fully every thought you'll think, everything that will transpire in the fall of Adam and Eve, everything that would transpire in Genesis 6, everything that Pilate would do, He knows completely and fully at the same time of that ordaining that things be, He has ordained His response in the particulars to that so that when the earth gets filled with evil. He can genuinely say and mean, I regret communicating, here's my holy response to sin, which was also foreordained before the foundation of the world. God, in the sense where it says, He changes His mind, I put Saul king, now you're out is never to be understood in the sense that he does it because he never saw what was going to happen with Saul or with humanity that he will wipe out from the face of the earth. It is because he has purposed to have appropriate, fitting responses to each given situation that unfolds in redemptive history so that when earth is filled with violence and evil, he could say, and ought to say, and has preordained himself to say, I grieve, and I'm sorry, and thus I'm going to wipe them all out. And it doesn't mean, because I never saw it 
coming. He saw it coming from eternity, and he also saw his response to it, not only when it happened, but in eternity past, before he created. Let me just give some conclusions, and then I'm going to do a little application. And we'll close. I know this is deeply theological this morning. But here's what I've been saying. Here's the conclusion. God fully knew from eternity past what would unfold in our text in the mixing of the Sethite line, the godly line, and the satanic line, Cain's line. He fully knew before he ever created exactly what would transpire and the evil that would fill the earth. Just as much as he fully knew in Acts 2.23 and that he planned it, that Jesus would be crucified at the hands of sinful men. Therefore, God's choosing to perform acts like the incarnation of Christ, like the creation of humanity, that by definition He knew would give rise to the sinful state that leads up to Noah. He knew it in eternity past. When He chose to do it, He chose it with a full awareness of all that would transpire and His future responses to such acts in redemptive history like wrath, regret, grace, mercy, etc. When God experiences Regret. I regret that I made man, that He created the earth during the unfolding of Genesis 6. He is aware of it ahead of time. In some sense, God also experiences that sorrow that we see in Genesis 6 and the sorrow over what you may go through this week. He experiences it in eternity past when He fully knew it. Okay. This, please, don't understand this as, wow, contemplating God's omniscience. Who cares, Joe, that people like Boyd are writing books? It's kind of theoretical, isn't it, about what God knows and how He knows it. I don't think so. I think it's utterly practical on how you grieve, on the pain you experience, on how you understand your childhood, your present life, and what may happen in the future. Not only do I think it's that practical, the Greg Boyds in the church world think it's practical too. That's why they make a big stink about it. He's also a pastor. He wants to be pastoral. He finds it very practical to say, how will I deal with my parishioners when cancer comes or the child gets run over by a drunk driver and is dead? He came to the place where he does not want to tell them. God knew in eternity past exactly what happened because he knew that that would indict God because God chose to create anyway. And so he and others are developing a theology that is deadly in my opinion. They want to be able to say, that happened because God didn't know about what would happen. 
That was a human evil done against you. And that choice that that human being made, God didn't know because it didn't exist for Him to know. And Boyd and others think that that's comforting. And there are more and more Christians who will take that as comforting, but they will be understanding a God who is not of the Bible. And for people like me, I find that utterly discomforting. Let me, when I talk about practicality, and look, Boyd, these are well-meaning people. This, has, this only has to do with the content they come out in print with. It's nothing to do with a personal attack. I quote Boyd, and here's his practical application in his book, Letters to a Skeptic. He says, quote, Within the limits set by God, an individual may purpose to do things which are utterly at odds with God's ultimate purpose. Thus, when an individual inflicts pain on another individual, I do not think we can go looking for the purpose of God in the event. That's his practical application. He goes on, I know Christians frequently speak about, quote, the purpose of God in the midst of a tragedy caused by someone else. There was a young girl this year at Bethel College and Seminary who was killed by a drunk driver. A lot of students were wondering what the purpose of God had or what God's purpose, what purpose He had in taking her home. But this I regard to simply be a piously confused way of thinking. The drunk driver alone is to blame for the girl's untimely death. The only purpose of God in the whole thing is His design to allow morally responsible people the right to decide whether to drink responsibly or irresponsibly. End quote. And there are many who think Boyd's way. They think those words are supposed to be a comfort to Christians. I personally be frightened if that is who God is. If He is as finite as I am in His understanding if everything is totally out of his control. But more than that, Boyd's words do not square with Scripture. Well, i got so much time, so I'm only going to use one passage instead of 133 of them this morning. And say, how does Boyd's words here, how does his counsel to Christian people square with Scripture? And it doesn't. I'm turning to Hebrews. Turn with me, would you? To Hebrews chapter 12, verses 3 2.11 Consider Him who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself so that you may not grow weary, Christian, or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves 
and chastises every son whom he receives. End quote. It is for discipline, Christian, that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the Father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But God disciplines us for our good that we may share His holiness. For the moment, yeah, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. In this text, I think the Hebrew writer is clear. He's referring to the persecution that these Christians are experiencing at the hands of other people as they follow the example and the endurance of their Lord Jesus, who also suffered at the hands of sinful people. And He calls that experience and that endurance a loving Father's purpose for your life. See, in this text, it seems clear to use Boyd's word that I just quoted. Human beings are inflicting pain on other human beings. Boyd's counsel is to say, when that happens... Do not look for God's purpose in it. He has none. But when you look at this text, the Hebrew writer seems to be crystal clear that God has purpose even in it. As a loving Father, and it will bear fruit that is unimaginable even though now It's unpleasant. So let's just briefly consider exegetically this text. First, look at verse 3 again. Here's the example. Jesus. He says, Consider Jesus who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself. Got to feel that. Sinful people chose to do things to Him. And then, quote, so that you may not grow faint-hearted. It's for us believers. And then immediately after verse 4, the writer tells us, quote, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. In other words, these Christians, here's the context, are experiencing hostility by sinners against them. Just... No one's being martyred yet here. These Jewish Christians are not dying and shedding their blood yet. It hadn't gotten to that point like it did for Jesus. Now, he goes on in verses 5 to 7. 
And the writer of the book of Hebrews interprets this experience of the Christians who are experiencing hostility by sinners against him. He interprets it in verses 5 to 7. I quote, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. He says this experience that is painful at the hands of sinful people is the discipline of a loving Father. The word endure there in verse 7 is supposed to connect us back to verse 3 with Jesus. The experience of Jesus when He says He endured hostility by sinners. And now He says we must endure similar hostility by sinners. It is our endurance in this text of the hostility, of bad things that happen at the hands of sinners that is interpreted clearly as the loving formation, discipline of the Lord. And what follows in this very text is description of God's purpose in His doing it. We end right there with verses 10b and 11. Here's the Hebrew writer. What do you mean, discipline of the Lord? What are you talking about? He loves me as a father. What, why are you saying I can understand the pain I experience in my life at the hands of others as God's not totally apart from it, but He is, if I'm His, if I'm His child, it's loving training and discipline. He says, 10b to 11, He disciplines us for our good that we may share His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. We all know that. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. That's the best pastoral counsel I know to give. I don't want to tell people something about God that won't square with Scripture. I know that to just unfold word by word this text or Romans 8.28 Believer, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love Him and to those who are called according to His purpose. I know 
the responses, the horribly negative responses that can come from even us Christians when you're biblically that clear. The answer is not what these, here's the term for them, open theologians. Open theology is the term for this heretical view of God that God does not know future human choices because they don't exist in order to know. Let's believe and trust that God is perfectly on the throne of every joy and temporal pain in every believer's life for their eternal good. Because that's a reality, that's why it is so grieving that in our day, within evangelicalism, books like this are on the shelf. Redefining the very attributes of God so that they could say God had nothing to do with it whatsoever in any form. As we partake today and come to the Lord's table, let us come to the Lord's table with all of our past and whatever's going on in our lives in the present and whatever He has purposed to lay in our future and be able to say with great brothers and sisters in Christ in the past centuries what many of them have gotten together and to say very distinctly and clearly in the 1600s when they say and we say this morning God executes His will in the works of creation and providence according to His infallible foreknowledge and the free purpose of His will. Father, may we taste and see how good You are. May we feel every impact of Holy Scripture. May we know the genuineness of Your grieving that You created man when mankind filled the earth with sin and violence. And may we see next week how just You were to wipe them out. May we feel that You are the One who has purposed and planned even Genesis 6 to happen on a different level. We need this, Father, so that we could lay our lives gently into the palm of Your sovereign, fatherly, loving hand and that You would get all the glory in everything that You do from eternity past unfolded in our life experience. To the glory of Jesus. Amen.